good to see you all. Let's return to Micah. There is a Christmas verse in Micah, but we won't cover it today. In fact, I can read it to you real quick while you're finding your place. Micah, it's in chapter 5 and verse 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So we'll cover that, obviously, when we get there. Last week, we introduced this book, and we actually covered the first, I don't know, was it seven verses? Um, that's unheard of. We covered seven verses in a week. Hallelujah. What's funny about that is I chose this to hopefully time out when Brother DeGarmo returns and... Um, Come to find out, he did not get extended. I don't know where I heard that from. And um, if anything, Cindy said they're talking about maybe an early return. Yeah, so we'll just stop in chapter three and a half and we'll be fine. And after we covered seven verses, I thought, man, we're never going to get through, or we're going to get through this so fast. Um, but we haven't really got to kind of the, the preachy stuff yet. Anyway, Micah, hopefully you found your place. Micah chapter one. You ever just... Don't feel like doing a recap. That's what I feel like right now. You can go online. You can listen to the sermon from last week, and that will be your recap, a 55-minute <laughs> recap. Uh, all right. I, I reckon I have to say something because I'm contractually obligated to, and, uh, and so we'll say something here, but... Last week, we covered the play on words found in the meaning of the name Micah, the name of the town where he is from. Who is like God who will drive out the occupants with the wine press, if you remember all that from last week. Even in the meaning of the names, we find that judgment is on the way. And that's why Micah has come on the scene and it's going to be severe judgment as at that, as we'll see as we go. We also saw last week in verses 2 through 7 that judgment was on the way with the language that's used there. And there is something I forgot to mention last week that I want to state this week to clarify one of the points I was trying to make. Remember, there's a call there in verse 2 for all the people all the inhabitants of the earth, to hear what is about to be said. And the statement I made was when the intended target doesn't want to hear it, God is going to broadcast that message uh, as far as He can. And one of the things I forgot to mention was the reason why God does that is because His name is at stake. And it would be easy for the heathen around them to now be able to say, where is your God? I thought you had a God that could keep you from falling, that could deliver you, that could help you. And now uh, you've been taken captive and where's your God been? And God says, I want everybody to hear this message. The reason why you've gone into captivity is because you have forsaken me. And so God broadcasts that out to make sure everybody understands why they have fallen. And, and I'm pretty sure I forgot to mention all that. 
when Israel and Judah refused to obey the word of God, as we are seeing and will continue to see, um, judgment was going to be on the way. And, and for us today, you say, what's the point of Micah for us today? We need to take heed to this because when we forsake God and we forsake his word, we need to just rest assured that judgment will be on the way. At some point, we'll be judged for that. And uh, so it's, it's a call for us to take notice. A life of rebellion leads to God's judgment. Amen. Live in rebellion and you'll, you'll pay the price for that. And because they refused God's word and God's messengers, and because God was going to sow the house of Israel among the nations, and because God was going to lead Judah into a 70-year captivity into Babylon, God wanted the earth to know the reason why his people were being destroyed and that it had nothing to do with the fact that God was weak, but that they had forsaken God. You see, God will not pollute his name. He's not going to give his glory unto another. He's concerned for his great namesake. And God never lowers his standard of holiness. And whenever his people refuse to hearken to his message, then he will let the heathen world know that destruction has come, not because I'm weak, but because they have forsaken me. And this is necessary because the temptation from the world is to say, God must not be that great after all. Right? Because the heathen are looking. They're observing. They're watching. They're wanting to see if what we have is real. Is God real? And if God can't protect His people and keep them from going into captivity, then what kind of God do you have? And so Israel and Judah will be judged because they have forsaken God and they went after strange gods. And of course, it's also designed that those who are practicing what God's people are being judged for, i.e. the the heathen nations, that hopefully they'll hear of this, they'll see this, and they will be motivated to turn to God themselves because they're doing the same thing that God's people got destroyed for. And so hopefully it'll motivate them to turn to the living God. In verse 5, we were told the transgressions and sins of Judah and Israel It's called Jacob there. I don't have time to get into that. But a lot of times when you see judgment spoken of, God doesn't often refer to them as Israel. He refers to them as Jacob. Um, That old nature of Jacob there before his name was changed. And so the transgressions and sins of Judah and Israel was their high places. Remember we said last week that Samaria was the birthplace of the two golden calves that were uh, set up in the house of Israel in, in Dan and in Bethel one to the north, one to the south of that kingdom. And, and that's where Jeroboam set those up in hopes of keeping the people from going to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And so he used political, uh, religious political means to control the people. Hosea said of Samaria that it's your calf. And so that's the judgment here that upon the high places of Samaria, these, these golden calves that they worship. Judah's problem, we, we saw, was also the high places. The house of God was abused. Idolatrous worship was introduced in the temple by Ahaz. And uh, remember we said the land became dotted with places of idolatry and, and high place worship. 
And so Ahaz eventually shut the doors to the temple. He had just decommissioned the house of God eventually and, um, and did a lot of wickedness there. And so the problem was the house of God had become corrupted. It had become closed. And in its place was all this idolatry that was now taking place throughout Judah. We saw in verses 4 and 6 the symbolism of the coming judgment. The mountains would melt. The valleys will rent as wax before the fire and water pouring down a steep place. The stones of Samaria would be poured down into the valley. And where Samaria once stood, it would return to a fertile field. It would be returned back to agriculture. And so this once mighty city uh, in its place where these uh, heaps of stones once were would now just be a place where they would be growing crops. When God brings judgment, He knows how to do it. And in verse 7, all the graven images will be beaten in pieces, burned in the fire, and the idols will be made desolate. This is prophetic of how the Assyrians, when they would destroy a nation, they would also destroy the gods of the nation they conquered. We read Isaiah 37, 18, and 19 there last week. And verse 7 ends with a prophecy that Israel would be taken into captivity. They played the harlot, going after strange gods. They would return to the hire of a harlot. In other words... Where you got your harlotry, you are now going to go into that nation and you're going to be taken captive. And so that was the warning there that we left off last week. So let's begin this week by reading verses 8 through 16. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. For her wound is incurred incurable for it is come unto judah he is come unto the gate of my people even to jerusalem declare ye not at gath weep ye not at all in the house of uh, afra uh, roll thy afra roll thyself in the dust pass ye away thou inhabitant of of Saphir, having thy shame naked the inhabitants of zaanan came not forth in the morning of Beth Ezel, he shall receive of you his standing. For the inhabitant of Maroth waited carefully for good, but evil came down from the Lord unto the gate of Jerusalem. O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Therefore shalt thou give presents to uh, Moresheth Gath, the houses of Akzib. Anybody else want to try these names? Okay. I, I just want to make sure. I, I know I'm making a fool of myself here. But I'm not a Hebrew. Shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Yet will I bring an heir unto thee, O inhabitant of uh, Marisha. He shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. Make thee bald and pole thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle. They are gone into captivity from thee. So, in these verses, we see again judgments on the way. And I know that this has just been kind of a very depressing book so far. But it's going to end very well. <laughs> and judgments on the way again. And in verse 8, Micah says, He will wail and howl and will go stripped and naked. Now, I have been told that there are several different definitions for what it means in the Bible to be naked. And I've tried to study this as I was uh, trying to figure out what all this means. And some people say it depends on the context. We can see some of that, I think, 
in some areas on what that might mean. In the terms of clothing, naked is primarily used today to mean our birthday suit. And why wouldn't it? We are such an immodest society today that a woman can wear a bikini, which is usually less than underwear, and not be considered naked. How much more do you have to take off till you're naked? So in, in our day, that's how we use the term. But there ought to be shame in revealing na- nakedness. I, I personally like the theory. People often ask about the age of accountability for a child, and I don't believe anybody knows for every child. But I do like the theory that once a child becomes aware of their nakedness, once they understand that there's a shame associated with that, that maybe we ought to really perk our interest in their spiritual well-being because they are now beginning to understand there's something wrong with this. Where before, they could just run around the yard in a diaper and nobody, you know, "Ah." Um, if I did that today, (laughs) it would not go well. No, I mean... Uh, I thought about sumo wrestling out there, but that wouldn't go well. And so, um, um, so where was I at? <laughs> Certainly when an adult has no shame in revealing their nakedness, it indicates a heart issue. The term naked in the Garden of Eden did mean their birthday suit. Before sin, they were naked, but they were not ashamed. And that's kind of the key as you study this term I found. It's whenever it's associated with shame. After sin entered the world, their eyes were open and they knew they were naked and they tried to cover the shame of their nakedness. And so there ought to be shame to be naked in public. In Bible times, people were much more modest than they are today. And so there seems to be an agreement with those who are far smarter than me that naked could mean a wide range of definitions. And it could just be as simple as removing a certain piece of clothing. For example, I have been told that if a king would strip himself of his kingly garments, he would be naked in that sense because he has derobed his identity as a king. Same thing as a prophet. If they were to take off some sort of a mantle or something that identified them as a prophet of God, then that might also apply to that definition. I can't find where any of this can be definitively determined. I do know that it can mean, naked can, can mean that you're just ill-clothed. Paul talked about that. Jesus talked about that, um, about the little ones. And uh, if you've done it unto them, you've done it unto me. It talks about being naked there. And obviously just ill-clothed. But like I said, I can't find where the Bible makes a, a, a determination on that very distinctly. But it would seem that because God, and again, I hate to assume, but it would seem that because God considers it so shameful to be fully bare, that He would not have required His prophets to walk around stark naked while proclaiming the Word of God. We kind of we look at that and think, well, that makes sense. Why would God have them do something shameful while proclaiming His Word, right? And maybe that's true. So what does it mean when Micah said he would go stripped and naked? I don't know. I don't know for sure. 
But one thing which may be telling is that when Micah said he would do that, it never says that his shame would be uncovered, like we read in verse 11. In verse 11, it connects nakedness with shame. And I think that's kind of the key when you study that. You'll find that when, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in our lesson today, but when somebody's taken captive and they would strip them of the good clothes, there are times the Bible says that their shame would be revealed. Well, that's when it's bad, right? And so uh, we'll kind of get into that just a little bit. So I don't really know for sure what it means, and I may not understand exactly what all that means, but I know this, it's captivity language. Micah is giving them the outward illustration, the picture for them to see you're going into captivity. Unless you get your heart right. When, when people were taken captive, the enemy, I guess we're here already. <laughs> the enemy would strip off their nicer outer garments because those were profitable. Remember, there's not a Walmart, all right? You couldn't just go down to the store and buy clothes. It was kind of a big deal. Jesus had a seamless robe that when they went to gamble over it, or when they went to split it, they said, no, let's gamble over it. We dare not rent it because it's so precious. It's so special. And so they would strip off those outer garments as values, as spoils of of warfare, and they would keep those for themselves. If you remember, when Achan took of the accursed thing, what was one of the things he took? A goodly Babylonian garment. He saw that among the spoils. And so they would take those things because they had value. So when you went into captivity, they would strip you of anything of value. We we see that you can see Holocaust videos, and we're talking just rags. No jewelry, nothing of value. And so that's the picture here that Micah is giving the house of Israel that You're going into captivity. And so however he was clothed, I don't know, but it was enough for the house of Israel to know judgments on the way. And and that's the picture here. In Isaiah 20, verses 2 through 4, it says, At the same time spake the Lord by Isaiah, the son of Amos. Remember, Isaiah is a contemporary of Micah. He says, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins, And put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians prisoners and the Ethiopians captives, listen now, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And so when you start getting into the shame, when you went into captivity, they might take more than just your outer garments, okay? So by the manner in which Micah and Isaiah prophesied, they were both depicting the manner in which Israel and Judah would be led away captive. They would be stripped of their dignity. We can certainly say that. And that would lead to their mourning there in verse 8. Verse 8 also says, I will make a wailing like the dragon's and mourning as the owls. Whatever the dragon was, whatever it is today maybe, I don't know. But it might be an animal today under a different name, but whatever it was, it obviously made a noticeable wailing sound. He says, I'm going to wail like the dragon. 
And so he would walk around. Can you picture, and you got to picture this. Can you picture Micah walking around, proclaiming the word of God, not clothed like he normally would be, wailing like a dragon, mourning like an owl. People would think he was mad, right? And, and, and so he's getting their attention. He's, he's doing this just to picture what's going to happen. The owl made a mourning sound. Job said in Job 30, verses 28 and 29, I went mourning uh, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. I went mourning without the sun. I stood up and I cried in the congregation. I am a brother to dragons and a companion to owls. And so the language there is that there's, there's severe mourning. There's deep sorrow on, on what has taken place. Look at verse 9. For her wound is incurable, for it has come unto Judah. He is come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. In verse 6, we saw the prophecy turned to Samaria. And so when this verse says, her wound is incurable, it's referring to Samaria, the house of Israel, to the north. Based upon the verbiage of this verse, uh, Samaria's wound would have to be the Assyrians who were coming in to, to take them captive. And, and did you notice the transition in pronouns? It says, for her wound at the beginning, and then the second half, he is come. And so there's a transition here uh, talking about what, what's going to take place. Since her is Samaria, it stands to reason that the he there is some sort of political entity which would uh, come in unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem, that this would refer to the Assyrians, that, that they would get right to the doorstep of Jerusalem. We'll, we'll see that in just a minute. And so the entire northern ten tribes of the house of Israel were so mercilessly overrun, they could not recover. Their wound was incurable. And nothing would prevent their ruin because they had filled up their iniquity to the full. Only God knows when the iniquity of a nation or of a person is full. And that's sobering to me. I don't know about you. Only God knows when that, when that line is crossed. He's gracious. He's plenteous in mercy. He's full of compassion. He's long-suffering. He's kind. But there comes a point when he's no longer slow to anger. And there comes a point that he considers sinfulness full. And because he is holy, he cannot let it go unjudged, unchecked. Because he's holy. I want you to understand this morning, this will kind of be a first point, if you will. God always gives space for repentance. What a joy. He always gives space for repentance. Isn't it interesting that God told Abram that the nation which would spring up from him through Isaac and then Jacob would one day go down to Egypt, but one day come out of Egypt in the fourth generation. And this is what God told Abram. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And as I got to thinking about that in God's long-suffering and God's mercy, for God 400 years ahead of time saying, it's filling up. How long-suffering is God? It's filling up. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to get to the point, if they don't do something, it's going to be full. And God told Abraham that 400 years ahead of time. 
What a merciful God we have. He was willing to give the Amorites a space of 400 years to repent. But the Amorites continued in their wickedness. And once Israel was about to cross over into the land, the command was given by God that the inhabitants were to be utterly destroyed. None were were to be left alive. Some people think of God as this big meanie up there in the sky. That God is just, he's up there on his throne and he's just hoping, man, I hope they royally mess up so I can take some pleasure in zapping them. But that's not God. Amen? That's not God. God isn't up there hoping that we fail so that he can exercise his wrath. God's up there sending himself to be butchered and beaten and bled and die so that we can know him. And so uh, he's, he's merciful. He's given time for repentance. God is very patient with people. He's very patient with nations. Just look at America today. We certainly do not deserve what freedoms we have left. But here we are. And I know in America our iniquity is filling up. And one day God may look down and say, okay, that's enough. I think we saw what happens when God removes his hand on 9-11. All it took was for some men in an airplane. And now we've been over in an area for how many years now? Fighting an enemy with no uniform. You never know. You never know. But one thing's for sure, the ultimate day of God's purging is coming when he returns the second time. He's giving space now for repentance. People say, I don't know why the Lord hasn't come back yet. Because he's long-suffering. He's given you time to repent. He's giving the lost time to repent. He wants people to be saved. And so I'm, I'm excited in the fact that we do live in this time. I think we have, maybe unlike any other time in, in recent memory, uh, the chance for revival. Because so many people need the Lord. But iniquity is filling up. Now, people individually, that's great about nations. What about you as an individual? There comes a point when the iniquity of an individual is full, and God must bring judgment. We might look at a situation and go, ah, what a tragic accident. No, God was exercising judgment. Amen. Wages of sin is death. So we see God's mercy even in the latter half here. The house of Israel had finally crossed the line with God. God's going to bring judgment. After sending them prophets and pleading with them, trying to draw Israel unto himself for generations God had done this, God finally had to bring about judgment. But the latter half of the verse, towards the house of Judah, we read this. He has come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. The Assyrians, they swept through the northern kingdom, no problem. And they, they led them away. They, they advanced all the way to the front gate of Judah, the, the front porch, if you will. The Assyrians were there. And in 2 Kings verse, or chapter 18, verses 9 through 13, listen to this. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah. Now, he was a king in Judah which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, to the north. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. Even in the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel. Anybody confused yet? And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria and put them in Hala and in Habar, 
by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Here's the reason why. Because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed His covenant, and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, it would not hear them nor do them. Now in the fourteenth year of the king of Hezekiah, did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come against the fenced cities of Judah and took them. So what Micah is talking about here, Second, Second Kings is saying came to pass. Assyria was on the doorstep of the house of Judah after Israel fell. And you say, well, where's God's mercy in that? Well, he didn't let Judah fall. They deserved to fall. But he gave them an additional 125 years to repent. And so we see God's mercy in all this. But Judah ultimately refused, we know, and then they were taken captive by the Babylonians. When the Assyrians came through the house of Israel, it was so brutal that verse 9 says their wound was incurable. Now, this had yet to happen when Micah was speaking, but God will often in His Word speak about future events as if they have already happened. Because judgment is so certain unless there is repentance and God decides to show mercy. And so God speaks of this as it has already happened because that's how sure their judgment is. And He does this to strike fear into the hearts of the people. He speaks of the certainty of judgment to come in hopes that they'll get their hearts right. There's always hope that He can bring people to repentance. If you take Nineveh, for example, in the days of Jonah, Jonah entered the city crying out the message, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And even though God's message was, In forty days, I'm going to overthrow you, what happened? They received the message. They repented. They fasted and prayed in sackcloth and ashes, and they cried out to God, and they repented, and God didn't destroy the city. And so God, I'm just saying, He's trying to get people's attention. He's, he's trying to get them to repent. And even though the language here says, your wound is incurable, there still was hope. They just had to repent. If the house of Israel refuses to repent, which we know they never did in those days, their wound would be incurable. Aren't you glad that God will never destroy a repenting sinner? Whoop, that's exciting. The Assyrians' overthrow of the house of Israel caused them to almost completely, and we, and we could say it com- made them completely lose their identity because they were intermarried. The Assyrians sold them to the Egyptians. They sold them to other countries. And the house of Israel, when Jesus showed up, wasn't there. They were sown among the nations. The only ones that were left in, is, in the northern kingdom of Israel were the poor to work the fields. And so after all that intermarrying with the Gentiles, they had lost their identity. And so when Jesus shows up, he had to come of Judah. And so Judah was still intact for that purpose. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting out of, out of my lane here. So they, they, they would lose their identity being sown among the nations. And God promised that's going to happen If you rebel against me, I'm going to sow you among the nations. Um, That was in Deuteronomy 28, and actually a lot of places. But in Deuteronomy 28, just read that chapter, and you see the the blessings of God and the cursings of God if, if you obey and if you don't obey. And so if they rebel, we read the following judgment if they were to rebel and serve other gods. And in Deuteronomy 28, I'll just read to you verses 62 through 64. 
It says, And ye shall be left few in number, whereas ye were as the stars of heaven for multitude, because thou wouldest not obey the voice of the Lord thy God. And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. And ye shall be plucked off from the land whither thou goest to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And so God, God said, look, it's coming. You disobey and you rebel, you're going to be sown among the nations. And, and we can see the results of, that, of the prophecy of Micah even today. We don't find the house of Israel. They were sown among the heathen. And, and so here's the thing. Their, their wound was incurable. And I want you to understand, when you forsake the great physician, you forsake the healing. When we say, we don't want you, God, then God says, okay, but you're not going to get my remedy. You reject it. It's incurable. Look at verse 10. Declare ye it not at Gath, weep ye not at all. In the house of Aphra, roll thyself in the dust. As I mentioned last week, there's a lot of symbolism in this opening chapter, there's a lot of play on words. And, and we're going to probably stop at this verse today, I think. But as we go through this in the following weeks, you'll see all the names of these towns have a double meaning. That plays right into his message for Israel. First, this direction is given to the house of Judah. We read that the news of the house of Israel's demise wasn't to, to be declared in Gath. And Judah wasn't to weep at all. The house of Judah being to the south of the house of Israel would have to restrain their emotions in the face of their enemies. And don't you know that has to be hard to do? Gath was a chief city of the Philistines. But this not only means the city of Gath, but also all the Philistines. Don't, don't publish it. Don't declare it to the Philistines. I think we can make the application that poetically it's speaking of all of the enemies of God's people. We'll see that as I, as I go. But this language, like I said, is more poetic than an actual command. It says, don't, don't tell Gath, don't weep. And it's a desire that the enemies of God's people wouldn't have to hear of their demise. And the language is borrowed from King David when he learned of Saul's and Jonathan's death. Here's what David said in 2 Samuel 1.20. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, which was another city of the Philistines, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. When David said those words in the previous chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 31, the Philistines were already celebrating. They had already taken the body of Saul. They discovered him among the dead in the battle. They had taken the body of Saul. Uh, they had taken his, his sword and, and all the stuff associated with him. They chopped off his head and uh, they nailed him to the wall for all to see. They were rejoicing over the fact that they had defeated uh, the king of Israel. So this poetic nature, if you will, uh, of this phrase. 1 Samuel 31 Verses 8 through 10, this is before David said what he said. And it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. 
And they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent it into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So why did David and Micah feel led to say, tell it not in Gath? It could be from the account of Samson. In Judges 16, verses 23 and 24, it says, Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon, their god. This is right at the end of of Samson's life, if you can remember the account. And they were going to offer a sacrifice to their god and rejoice, for they said, Our god, listen to what they said, Our god hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, For they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And here's the principle. We don't spread the news when one of our comrades has fallen. We don't go out and give the enemy reason to rejoice over God's people. That's the principle for us this morning. Because the perception outside of the camp is somehow... Your God was unable to deliver you. Your God's weak. And our God, Dagon, our God, Ashtaroth, our gods are able to deliver us because we have your champion in our possession. And because of this, we need to pray more earnestly like David did in Psalm 25 too. Oh my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. We don't want to fuel the enemy's response over God's people. We understand in here this morning, those of us who are in Christ, we know God is almighty. And we know He is able to deliver if people just get their heart right. And we understand that. If the enemy triumphs, we know that we have had sin in the camp, that we have rebelled against God But the world doesn't see it that way. The world's going to look at our fall. God forbid forbid this church ever fall. But the the world would look at that and say, See, I told you our God was bigger than your God. Or in the day and age in which we live, which is becoming increasingly more atheistic. See, I told you there was no God. I, I knew God wasn't real. And they'll mock God's people if we are defeated. Psalm 42 verse 10 says... As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me, while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? This is not to suggest we sweep issues under the rug either. So understand what I'm I'm saying here. At no point does God want us to ignore sin. And if it's a serious enough offense, we aren't to plead the fifth to outsiders. You understand what I'm saying? Somebody says, well, I heard so-and-so... And now he's in jail. Yeah, that's true. And we weren't going to allow that wolf in this congregation. I don't care if we have to say those things. But we're not going to go broadcast it. Amen? We can be honest, but we can be wise. However, whenever prudent, we shouldn't declare and publish the downfall of our Christian uh, brothers and sisters. If a church or a person, a Christian, fall to the enemy, we don't rejoice. 
and we sure don't publish it to the world. We don't want to purposefully give the enemy reason to triumph over God's people. In fact, if you are one who takes pleasure in the calamities of others, you've got a heart issue. If you rejoice when somebody falls, you got, you got issues. Because somebody's going to do you wrong one day, and God, it may catch up to them, and they may fall, and you may go, ha, 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 I knew it. That's a temptation. Some people have perfected the use of Facebook to exploit brother and sisters in Christ. And it breaks my heart how people will go out there on social media and they'll publish everything in gaff. All for the world to see, all for God's enemies to see, publish things that they really have no business declaring because they don't even have the full story. And it seems that some ministries exist for the sole purpose of tearing down others. Have you seen these ministries? It seems some ministries exist just to tell people what they are not. Brother Long, you mentioned recently, I think, um, how it's interesting on a church sign or a website, you'll see we're bam, 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 bam. And ultimately what we're saying is if you're not one of these, you're not welcome here. If you don't fit our little list of criteria, we don't want you here. And we really put up the no welcome sign inadvertently. Maybe some do it purposefully, I don't know. But we, we, we kind of inadvertently do these things. And so I remember when you mentioned that, and I was like, yeah, that's true. And uh, don't come in here if you can't fit all of what we are. Never mind the fact that somebody may have just gotten saved. Or maybe they got so burned in another church that they've never even grown an inch. And yet we're going to sit there and say, sorry, you're not welcome here. Is it okay if I soapbox for a little bit? <laughs> and we just act like, you know, well, we got it all figured out. And, and sorry, you just can't come in because uh, you, don't, you don't understand the 144,000. <laughs> because that list of things which are their criteria for fellowship, when you think about a new believer or a young believer, it's never even crossed their mind. I have yet to meet a new believer who is sitting there just dying to know my opinion on the revelation. I mean, let them be happy in Jesus for at least a year or two. A lot of people have never even been introduced to the things that we throw out there and say, boy, you better line up with this. There are some within the independent Baptist camp who take pride in trying to tear down other churches and other pastors at every turn. And man, that drives me insane. Be cautious of a church where the pulpit is constantly used to tear down other preachers. That's not good. I'm not saying we don't expose wolves in sheep clothing, but... But when the local church pulpit is used to tear down another local church, man, there's issues there. I can't remember who I was listening to. The preacher said he saw a church's bulletin where the entirety of the bulletin was used to tell the church why they were not going to be like the church down the road. Okay, great. So who are you going to be like? Some spend week after week running down and tearing down and screaming about what, screaming about what they're not but no one ever seems to know who they are. They just know what they're not. We can't fellowship because we're not like that and we're better than that. Okay, but do you know why you are not this? No, not really. But I know we're not like you and therefore we don't like you. 
Oh, and by the way, we're going to declare it in Gath, even though we don't really know the reasons why. It's insanity what's going on out there. I was talking to a preacher, and I said, uh, you realize we line up on about 99% of everything. And, and it just tickles me, you know. Uh, do you use the King James Bible? Yeah. Do you sing hymns? Yeah. Do you have standards? Yes. Do you run buses? Yes. Do you have three services a week? Yes. Do you hold to the Baptist distinctives? Yes. Well, we still don't like you. Because obviously you've compromised something. The only reason y'all are grown is because you're a compromiser. With the exception of one church for a year or so, I'm so glad God has kept us in good churches. I'm so blessed to have been a part of churches who love the Lord and the brethren and aren't looking to divide over the slightest differences. Yes, I understand there's lines in the sand which we do not cross. We're not going to deny the blood of Christ. That kind of thing. I understand that. But we are shooting our own within independent Baptist circles. All because this church or this pastor wants to be at the top of the hill of biblical knowledge and separation. And I'm just like, okay, you can have the top of the hill. I don't really care. Just leave me alone. Quit publishing lies in Gath. And for that matter, quit publishing lies in, from Dan to Beersheba within the camp. Just shut up. I'll tell you why I'm glad I've never been, why I've never been a part of a church like that, why it, I'm happy about it. It's because they never seem to thrive. They never seem to be truly joyous. The only liveliness they ever experience is when they finally have a reason to hate another church of like faith. I knew we hated you. Now we can impeach you. I don't really know why we're impeaching you, but we're going to do it. Finally have something to be excited about. I finally have an axe to grind. I'm so happy. I've known marriages like that. <laughs> Miserable to each other until they finally can both be mad at somebody else. And then they're happy because now they can complain about that person. Have you met marriages like that? <laughs> but for churches like that, just to be excited in the Lord, forget about it. They're too busy being upset about everybody who's not like them. There's typically limited growth because eventually people get tired of the constant negativity. And all they ever learn is what's wrong with everybody else. And eventually people are standing around going, what do we believe? All I know is we don't like you. It, it really turns almost cultish. And it ends up being just a couple to three families that hold the thing together. I know we never grow, but it's because we're the only ones taking a stand, bless God. Yeah, that's my point. You take a stand against every, you know, everything but the main thing. Everything healthy is growing to some degree, whether internally or numerically. And I can tell you, the first century church, they took a stand. And they were growing by leaps and bounds. Thousands being added to the church. So it's not a matter of taking a stand, but it's what you take your stand on. They stood on Christ. And here's an idea. Just be like Christ. When you're like Christ, then you can tell people who you are like and stop defining yourself by who you are not like. Well, what defines y'all? Well, we're, we just want to be like Christ. 
Well, sorry I got on a soapbox there. There are many times we need to be slow to speak. Just keep our opinions to ourselves. Now, listen to me. I want you to get this because as God continues to bless here, and I've already seen it behind the scenes, but eventually it'll come out. The more God blesses, the more the attacks will come our way. And I want everybody to be prepared for it because I don't want you being guilty of publishing things in Gath. Don't chase them down on Facebook. Don't, don't rail. When Jesus was reviled, he reviled not again. And, and I'm telling you what's going to happen because it's already happening with, with some others. Um, like I said, it's kind of behind the scenes right now. But they're going to they're gonna start attacking and saying, you know why you're growing? It's because you're a bunch of compromisers. It's going to happen. It already is. And whatever the reasons are, it'll be surrounded by that word compromise. I'm thankful as of right now it's, been, it's remained veiled. Anyway, we have to stop there today. I just heard the second buzzer. It'll take too long to cover the next verses, that's for sure. Um, don't publish it in Gath. And listen, we're just going to rejoice in what God's doing here. I'm excited for it. I hope you are. Um, but don't, don't go chasing down all the ne- negativity. It just ain't worth it. Let's pray.